Before we begin this episode, I want to share with you something for Season 7. So, you want to know what goes well with a bun mi? Freshly roasted Vietnamese coffee from Win Coffee Supply. Yes, that's right. Win Coffee Supply is America's first specialty Vietnamese coffee company and proud champion of the resilient Robusta bean. The company imports through direct trade relationships with Vietnamese farmers and roasts in Brooklyn, New York. Founded in 2018 by first-generation entrepreneur activist Sarah Nguyen, the company is on a mission to change the future of coffee through diversity, sustainability, and cultural integrity. Specifically, they diversify the industry through Vietnamese coffee, elevate resilient robusta as the key to our sustainable coffee future, and transform the landscape through economic advancement for both Arabica and robusta farmers globally. Check out their website at www.wincoffeesupply.com or follow them on Instagram at wincoffeesupply. Remember, it is spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. Be sure to use the code BUNMI10, spelled B-A-N-H-M-I, to get your discount when you make a purchase on their website. Red Scarf Revolution is a merchandise line that celebrates and uplifts the Khmer diaspora identity and experiences. It is also part of the effort's long work on preserving the history of the Khmer American culture and honoring the survivors of the Khmer Rouge genocide. Founded and organized by Salong Chun, a 1.5 generation Khmer American who was born in the Thailand camps after his family escaped the genocide, he created Red Scarf Revolution as a remembrance of that tragic history but also the celebration and resilience of the Khmer people across the diaspora. You can check out their website and merch line at redscarfrevolution.com or on Instagram at red underscore scarf underscore revolution. Thank you. Hey everyone, welcome to the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. This is your host and creator of this podcast, Randy Kim. I cannot believe it has been six months since my last season, and that time has gone by so quickly. But I am so grateful to be back, and I feel so rejuvenated to kick off this new season seven with a new lineup, new stories, and a new theme, which I will explore with you all. But before I start, I want to say Thank you all for your patience and for your support and encouragement. I cannot tell you how much this all means to me. And without your support, I likely would not have continued on to season seven. But you all gave me the encouragement and reminded me about the meaning of this work, which I am just so honored and so grateful to be doing. Uh, once again so thank you all and to share with you this new theme it's called reclaim and what does reclaim mean it is about taking on what it means to document our own lived experiences as part of a history and future making and how reclaiming our stories through our own agency sets us up to reimagine a world that we want to live in and to position our younger generations to become responsible stewards of our community's legacy. And what I also would like to share is that I also want to dedicate the season to my friend and podcasting colleague, Wayne Chung, 
who passed away unexpectedly this year at the age of 45. His passion for the podcasting world, his love of music, and his incredibly optimistic personality were such a joy to be around. I've been very fortunate to be a guest on his podcast marathon that he did last year and gotta say I love hearing about his passion for music, his vision for what a good podcasting platform could look like and so much more and I just want to say that he will be sadly missed and I will miss his encouragement and his support for my work so Wayne thank you from the bottom of my bottom of my heart and this season is for you for this season seven opener i brought special guest michelle lee on to kick things off michelle is a news anchor based in st louis this past new year's she experienced a white collar leaving her a voicemail with racist comments about her new segment in which she accused michelle of being quote-unquote very asian we talked about how that moment would galvanize the AAPI community in a time where anti-Asian violence has continued to escalate since the pandemic. We discussed her Asian adoptee upbringing and the challenges that Asian and BIPOC journalists face in less diverse newsrooms and communities across the US. Michelle shared about the value of lived experiences and how that can impact stories that are being covered. Along with her foundation, very Asian, which he recently started. We shared so much more, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Now, a word from another fellow sponsor of the seventh season. Is your nonprofit tired of using multiple Excel spreadsheets? Do you have a hard time reporting program data to your funders? Johnson Consulting can help. Through the Salesforce Foundation, it provides access to their fundraising platform for free to any C3 nonprofits. Jansu Consulting specializes in customizing Salesforce to your organizational needs. They will provide hands-on training to your staff. Don't miss out on this amazing opportunity to help raise more money for your nonprofits so you can keep making a positive impact in your community. So please visit Jansu Consulting at www channsou.com. Again, it is www.channsou.com to learn more about their services. Hey everyone, so welcome to the Bunmy Chronicles podcast. So I am opening up season seven and I am just so stoked right now because I am with Michelle Lee. And so who is Michelle? So she is a Korean American adopting news anchor currently based in St. Louis and is a five-time regional Emmy Award winner. So on January 1st of this year, Michelle Lee shared a segment on the evening news about what Americans eat on New Year's Day. After she read the story, Lee ad-libbed, I ate dumpling soup. That's what a lot of Koreans do. Following the newscast, Lee received a couple of comments thanking her for her comments. But a few hours later, her station KSDK received a voicemail from a viewer who said she was being offensive. The caller said Lee's banter was quote unquote inappropriate, adding that Lee was quote unquote being very Asian and annoying. The caller mentioned if a white anchor were to say something similar, they would get fired and that Lee 
can't quote unquote keep her Korean to herself. Lee played the full voicemail for her followers on social media. On Instagram, she posted, We should all be given the chance to bring our humanity to the table. Hours later, Lee started receiving an outpouring of support from around the world after Jia Vang, a fellow news anchor in Minneapolis, shared a social post about Hmong foods and used the hashtag VeryAsian. AAPI communities and allies turned the hashtag into a collective positive moment of pride. Since then, Michelle has founded the Very Asian Foundation, which is committed to amplifying diverse AAPI voices through education, storytelling, and community connection. Michelle was recently named Game Changer of the Year by Webster University. So Michelle, welcome to the podcast. It is such an honor to have you on the show and to have you be the surprise opener of my seventh season, which I named the title uh, of the theme, Reclaim. And I have been inspired by your unwavering courage, tenacity, and compassion. And you've had quite a start to 2022. And I imagine that this was not the scenario that you could have painted prior to the ball dropping on New Year's Eve, right? Oh, no. Well, I'm just glad. Um, thank you for your interest, first of all. And yeah, no, I could not have expected that this was going to be my life. Um, you know, you, it's just, it's interesting because um, there are just a lot of surprises in life and this is one of them, you know, and it's been a great surprise. Um, and I feel like I was always kind of working towards something that I never could I have imagined like something at this scale, you know, but it's been really great. <laughs> Yeah, and I can only imagine, like, you know, for you to see that voicemail from this uh, white woman who showed anger towards your own Asian identity was both painful and very triggering. And when I heard that voicemail, I thought of the several times when our identity experiences and our belonging are often questioned and ridiculed. You talked about how you felt in that moment, but what did you want to say to that person and to the world at that time? Oh, gosh, well... At the time, I was I was really hurt, you know, because I think I didn't really even know what words to use. Like, I didn't even really understand what I was processing, you know. But I think now, looking back, um, it's been, you know, a couple of months, three months. I think for me, it's this idea of always having to look... Um, basically look, look out for myself in the sense that when I was um, a younger journalist, people would call and complain about me being Asian. I mean, this is not the first time this has ever happened to me. I've been in the news for 20 years. So if I would go to like a, a Memorial Day ceremony or a Veterans Day ceremony, sometimes people would say something about my, the way I looked, um, you know, about me being Asian. Um, I had calls, um, you know, complaining about me. And I remember one particular day where someone um, mis mistook me for someone who was Japanese, but they said, you know, get that damn Jap off TV. This is so disrespectful. And um, my producer stood, stood, stood up for me, which I thought was really wonderful. But at the same time, um, because I had had so many negative interactions in the news industry, I was always afraid that if someone called enough to complain, if I got enough complaints, that I would lose my job. Um, and I still kind of go back to that a lot of times um, because I feel like, well, we're here in the Midwest again. I'm one of a handful of Asian people on air. Um, we are not, I'm not saying that we're not valued, 
that like we're in a market where we're in a news market where there aren't um where there isn't a like where there isn't overwhelming support to be asian um and that really does make a difference when you're on the west coast you know that there is power in being an asian person um and so people i think want that representation on television but in a market where there's this perceived notion that asian viewers aren't existent then you do get worried that if you get enough phone calls about you being asian that it would be a distraction big enough to make mm-hmm. you lose your job so that's why i get um that's where that took me when that woman called about me being very asian um it also was just really hurtful because i you know i'm just tired of it, it every year in my life you know you encounter something like mm-hmm. this maybe not at that scale but you know sometimes you just want to exist in the world and just be like a normal person whatever normal mm-hmm. means to you you know yeah and also it's a safety issue too when you are one of the Absolutely. asian women and given what has happened that is a very terrifying prospect that you're dealing with and you know when you talk about the issues you had earlier on and this actually you um, answered one of my questions ahead about your own early experiences in journalism and it really brings me back and i recently wrote about this the other day because i haven't given it a, a fair light and i being a student journalist um back at my community college and then at um as an intern for uh, a sports tv network in college I was in predominantly very white spaces. And I think in college, there was one particular moment in that it still gets me emotional, but I want to share this because when I was uh, a student journalist 20 years ago, I was actually covering the Southeast Asian Symposium. And this, as an 18 to 19 year old person, this was a huge deal for me because I'm Cambodian and Vietnamese. And this was my opportunity to learn about the killing fields. I learned a lot through that symposium. So I was there to cover that story. I took pictures. And my editor in chief, who was a white middle-aged woman, and she looked at her, she's like, you know, I really love the Opsarad dancers. They're very beautiful. So we're gonna put that in the front cover. Okay, that was great. But then she looked at the story and she said, I don't think it's important enough to be in there. So it's gonna be put aside for something even more irrelevant in my opinion. But I thought that was incredibly hurtful because I think growing up in a predominantly white community, I felt that I had done my assimilation homework, right? Mm -hmm. And then, and I thought I proved my parents wrong that this was the path that I could take. And then to hear that was a setback. And I had to experience that again a couple years later when I had to deal with a white peer who was about my age bullying me and also being very homophobic. It didn't help to be in an environment where I have no one to go to. And, you know, and especially when you go into interviews, one of the questions I remember was, how does it feel? How would you handle being the only Asian person in this office? And as an early 20 something year old, (laughs) you don't know what to say to that mm-hmm. and i think hearing your story is quite you know very similar to a lot of what journalists have gone through and i think the silver lining was like i started a podcast because i needed to heal that young version of myself and i think yeah. when you start the very asian foundation i have a good feeling that was possible part of your own healing you know to heal your younger self and also the more recent self too 
Oh, yes, that's a really great way to put it. Well, first of all, I'm really sorry that you had those experiences. And I think that that's um, a connection point for so many people because we've all been othered and dismissed, you know, not in, in many spaces, you know, not just our personal lives when we, or when we walk out the door, but in our workplaces or places that we deserve to have humanity. And that's the problem um, that needs to get solved that I think people are being better at it, but at what expense, you know, because over the years, how many of my colleagues and peers have dropped out of news or maybe never made it into like their first or second markets because of racism and discrimination, you know, and, and words like that. I mean, there were so many times when I wanted to quit because I just felt like I wasn't valued at all. And I mean, don't get me wrong. There are lots of days like I could have this week that I didn't feel valued. I mean, it's not just like I need to be valued all the time as a worker. This is just, you know, but like, to really have words like, um, I remember, you know, um, gosh, when I was a really young reporter, I would say like, well, I want to get a job in like Tulsa, you know, or um, North Carolina. And someone would say, oh, well, we, we, we can't hire you at this station because we already have an Asian person. And that would just be really confusing for the viewer. So, you know, you have to imagine so there's only one Asian at each station, like you can only top off at one Asian on camera. Well, so then you realize that those jobs are at a premium, you know? So if you have the one Asian job at your station and you're being told that the viewers don't care that you're Asian, they don't care about you. I mean, you know, or they don't, they, they don't um, like you or whatever it is then all that stuff has to do then then you feel like you have to hold on to that job and then you mm -hmm. also have to you feel like you're always at risk of losing that job and i oh, really yeah. I, I really did feel that way and sometimes still do feel that way um i'm at a point in my life now where i'm in a different season you know so i'm thinking about my kid all the time and you know i don't i want to work and i think i've um brought a lot to the table in terms of experience and you know, and I've done my work and I still continue to do my work, but, um, you know, if I lost my job now, it would be very difficult, but I think that I'd be in a place to like, just get another job, you know, or I'd feel confident to be like, okay, I'm just going to go somewhere else. Um, I don't think I would lose my job based on being an Asian person. I mean, but you know what, I guess in reality, no one's going to tell you that. I mean, they wouldn't have told you that before, mm. but I mean, but mm. I did, but, I mean, I literally, well, I remember one, and I said this in an in open meeting before, um, you know, 15, 12, 15 years ago, I remember I was like, well, doesn't it matter that I'm the first Asian American woman to anchor like an evening newscast in this city? And my news director said, no, it doesn't matter because the, the viewers don't care. Like there just aren't enough Asian viewers to care about you. Um, wow. And I just thought like, that's so crazy. So people have said some really, and if you ask any Asian person who's been in news for a minute, um, they've all heard stuff like that. I mean, we talk about this all the time. So it's, it's um, um, I think it's still pretty prevalent. Um, but maybe not said as much, you know, because there are definitely people who feel like they can't get a job 
unless it's on a west coast or a coast because mm. um there's not a need for asians in the midwest which is total bs you know but a lot of people do feel that way yeah absolutely and also it reminds me of my own disdain for the hashtag of representation matters and yes it does but it also like it doesn't dissolve the tokenism and you know being in these places where you are always the only asian person you don't have that mentor you don't have a person you feel like you could trust that could really um swing for the fences and make you feel welcome and not just only as the only asian person but other bipoc folks who at least um understand how important it is because if we look at it not only is the representation important but also the the leadership uh the equity in the leadership is so important and also it it impacts how our news is being delivered to our communities it's a it's important to how policies are being shaped i mean if we have issues on immigration you really need people with a closer lens to that experience right and and when you start having the narratives being created by those who do not have the lived experiences, it is a very dangerous uh, slope. And this is what we've been seeing for quite some time. You know, um, I'll be very careful about uh, about how political I get here, but we also know that there are news stations, news corporations that have particular interest of how they want policies to be shaped that actually affect um, marginalized communities and uh, i wonder like what does that do for your responsibilities as as a news anchor in reporting the news and knowing that you know as an asian woman that there is a responsibility to knowing that there's impact uh, being made uh and how that actually influences government well i mean there's so much to unpack there um you know first of all like some people will say like can you um, objectively report on your community? And I always say, yes, of course, because you wanna be able to report on your community with empathy. So what does your community look like? You know, for example, can moms, I always use this example, can moms report, who would you rather have reporting on the experience of childbirth? Um, um, I mean, I don't wanna get too much into gender, you know, but I'm just like, I'm just saying, would you rather, should I tell my story of childbirth or should my husband tell the story of childbirth, right? Um, can I report on my community as a woman? Like we all understand like women can report on women's issues probably a little bit better than men reporting on women's issues or like, or vice versa, you know, men can report on men's issues better than women's issues, so to speak. Um, so I don't understand why certain um, immigration topics have become so politicized and dehumanizing. You know, um, I am an adoptee, but I was adopted before um, the Children's Act of 2000. And because mm. of that, um, adoptees who are in my age range are considered immigrants. So I'm an immigrant. I am a naturalized citizen. Um, and there are some parents out there who did not get their citizenship um, do the paperwork for their children. And so there have been, there I think there are roughly like 10,000, I could be wrong on the latest numbers, but I thought it was like roughly 10,000 adoptees in the United States who are at risk for deportation hmm. and some have been deported. And that's very important to note because when you 
are brought to this country unwillingly. I mean, you're brought here as a child, adopted, so to speak, um, and then forced to go back to a country that you have no connection to with language or culture or even family. Uh, and then so in some cases where the countries require social security numbers for you to work or a family registry, um, it has been said that it could be a death sentence, you know, because you're really taking away all livelihood from, for people. And um, to me, that seems like a very, like when I say that, I don't think it's a political thing to be like these, these kids who are now in their 40s and 50s and 60s should be automatic citizens, you know? Right. Um, because it's like, I did not have anything to do with my um, journey to the United States. Right. So, I mean, you could get into a lot of immigration issues, um, and I'm, you know, don't want to like get political. It's a rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's the idea of like you can report. A lot of people don't even know that about adoptees, but I do because I'm an adoptee. You know, there's adoptee and, trauma too. Yeah, and so, yes, absolutely. But I mean, if if we have people who don't know anything about immigration reporting on immigration, or if they don't have the lens of like the experience. Mm -hmm or if they don't have someone close to them or whatever it may be, then they might not be able to report on it. Um, well, they definitely probably won't, they don't, they you can't guarantee that they'll report on it with empathy or with like real common sense kind of approaches. You know, I mean, I think that that's, that's something to keep in mind. There's one thing to like report on something and there's another thing to like have empathy and common sense in your reporting. So, um, so that's one thing. Um, now I kind of lost track of what you're, what else you were talking about, but, um, but, you know, it is hard because I think that um, at the end of the day, we should be able, like we just said, you know, to bring your humanity to spaces. And so a lot of our humanity has been politicized over the years. And so that is something that is a challenge because it seems like I don't want, as me as a human being, I don't want to be politicized. I just want to be able to make good decisions based on, uh, you know, what I know for myself and for my family. And I think a lot of people feel that way. And a lot of people feel like their skin tone has been politicized. Oh, yeah. It actually reminds me of that last episode I did with Christian Ha, who was a 19-year-old Chinese-American adoptee who was murdered by police during a mental health crisis. And, and I think, like, you know, with that story, one of the things that really frustrated me was that in... The way the media was reporting it was that no one had actually bothered to ask him who he was as a kid and to talk about the layers of being adopted because it it, it did affect his mental health and it also um brings nuance that was missing mm -hmm. especially when it comes to police violence you know this is just in many examples when you lose opportunities to bring the nuances to bring the, some of these lived experiences to the table and and this is why it's it really affects public opinion and also mm -hmm. affects the accountability of public officials and um, police and other um, other higher forms of leadership uh, that really should be held account that we can hold accountable to. So thank you for really sharing that. And and I know that you know getting back to what happened on that New Year's Day. You know uh, my understanding is that you know so many. Asian Americans and including myself and so many fellow allies were coalescing around you and putting the hashtag very Asian, especially your friend and colleague Gia Vang, who helped to amplify that 
So what did that support teach you, especially in a time where anti-Asian violence, especially among Asian women and elders, are at, are at its highest risk? Well, it showed me that people still want to be able to be proud and celebrate who they are, you know, because we can't live in a sense. Let me be really careful here. Um, it is very sad and terrible, and we need to do something about people being beaten or worse for being Asian, you know, for being assaulted. It's, it's, unex it's absolutely unacceptable. But I think that we have two realities, dual realities, where we can um, not only grieve over things, we can also have gratitude over things, right? So um, to me, when I saw people use the hashtag very Asian and shared so many joyful, celebratory, you know, proud things, it showed me that there is still room to have gratitude among all this grief. And then it also showed me how many people feel like they have not yet been seen in conversations related to Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islanders in this country. I had a lot of response from people who are adoptees, really. I mean, so many adoptees. Had a lot of um, response from people who are of mixed race. And I had a lot of response from people who are in the LGBTQ plus communities. So to me, that showed me how much people don't feel even brave enough to say something in conversations among, in, in our own community, in our own Asian American, Native Hawaiian Pacific Islanders communities, because people feel like, I saw so many DMs that were like, I just didn't feel Asian enough because I'm a fourth Japanese and I don't look Japanese. Mm -hmm. So I never felt like I could say something. And you know, um, my kid, my, I'm looking at my kid and like, um, none of my friends who are Asian think he really looks Asian, <laughs> you know, and none of his family who, and friends who think, who are white looks at my kid and goes, oh, he looks white, you know? So it's funny how we all kind of like are judging our, you know, judging each other on based on presentation alone. And that's really, I'm not in the business to do purity tests on people. Um, I think that like, if we're really going to be inclusive, we really have to be inclusive. You know, I would never um, sell out my white parents or my white husband or my white family because they have in many ways been very Asian and more Asian than a lot of people in my life, you know? So, um, so I feel like what I've learned is that in order to be I think in the hashtag very Asian, we just have so many people feeling um, inspired and touched and seen, you know, and the solidarity um, that we saw in so many people too, like my favorite hashtags, I said this over and over again, were openly black and very Jewish. I, it's just this idea of letting people live freely, like letting people be who they are, accept and, and help them accept who they are so that they can go on the world and be a better person, you know, like, um, but also I do love being hashtag very Asian, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, um, but I'm just so tired of people judging, you know, making assumptions and then, and then judging me. Um, I'm, and I'm sure everybody is, but I'm also very proud to be in this body too. You know, I'm just very proud to be Asian as well. 
but um but you know i i think um when i was in seattle i've told this story too but you know um I feel like as a Midwesterner, I was always like, am I really Asian enough anyway? Because I'm in the Midwest. Very relatable. I'm going to be on a coast if I'm going to be Asian. You know, and it's like, I lived on the West Coast and it was so funny. Um, someone who I knew was, who was an investigative reporter and she's Korean and she was like, Michelle, I, I need you. You speak Korean, right? And I said, well, a little bit, but not like a ton, you know, because she knows I'm adopted. She's like, well, I speak zero. And I'm like, what do you mean you speak zero? You're like raised by Korean people and you like go to Korea every summer, you know, or whatever. And she's like, I don't, I don't speak the language. And so then I realized then like, oh yeah, like everyone has their own level of Asian-ness, whether they have parents to rely on or not, whether they live on a coast or not, um, whether they go back to their origin country or not, you know? And so we all have this um, shared experience as Asian Americans. Right. Like we're kind of our own little sect. And so like we also are um, we're all being intentional about how we bring culture into our lives and what that looks like. And so to me, that's a common thread within the American aspect of, you know, of of who we are, because um, I just always thought that I wasn't Asian enough until really until probably I lived in Seattle. Wow. And thank you for I want to say thank you for inviting us to these experiences and for really um, breaking down some of the many intersectional layers and also how the Asian American experience, and I've said this on my show several times, that it's not a single story narrative. There's so many different times when our own Asian-ness gets questioned, especially like, could you speak this language? I know I can't speak Vietnamese and Khmer very well at all. And I sometimes have this imposter syndrome. A lot of us have this imposter syndrome within our own skins, especially being in this country where, you know, we were brought in through, you know, poverty, through opportunities, through state-sanctioned violence. I mean, there's so many different ways different ways of how we arrive to this country and what traumas we bring and what kind of of upbringing we were uh, raised in. So yeah, obviously the Midwest, the rural communities, exurban, coastal, they all have their own different experiences. And mm-hmm. I think this is a good lesson for us to learn about why this, why there's so much different dynamics at play. And But it's also very important to show that that do these complications that we have, we have something that's very special that really bonds. It's like bringing the culture in, as you mentioned, and that's something to to really be proud of, but also to unearth a lot of our history <laughs> that was not taught to us. Right. And so that to me is like, wow, we're doing the archeological work and digging do what, um, you know, uh, like a lot of uh, white historians have pushed away, you know, from mm-hmm. the history books. And, mm-hmm. you know, going back to what happened, like, you know, uh, with the caller, I remembered hearing that she actually apologized to you. Is that correct? She did how apologize. Did that, yeah. How did that happen? And what was the conversation like? I'm, I'm very curious. So nowadays, you know, when someone leaves a voicemail, you get the caller ID, right? Because the mm-hmm. caller ID did, I can't even remember the name, but it was, um, you know, not a name that seemed like a woman's name. And again, I don't want to be like, you know, about gender. Like I, right. anyone can have any name, but it was just like, it was like Stuart or something, you know, it was like not, a, I was like, I don't think this is, I'm guessing her name might not be Stuart. I mean, that's just an assumption. So again, I don't want to assume anything. Um, 
but so I don't know whose phone that was. I called it back. I left a message right before I um, went on to do my commentary to respond to the voicemail. And I said, you know, no shame. I just want to kind of have a conversation with you if that's something that you're interested in. And um, eventually she called back and she said, that was me. I made that voicemail and I didn't mean to hurt you. And I'm very sorry. And, um, you know, it's funny because when you are in an actual situation where there's a live person on the other end of the phone and they apologize and they feel very genuine, it's hard to be like, well, screw you. Like you didn't, <laughs> that's not true. You, you're not sorry. You know, I, I was really like, wow, that's really brave that you called. Um, but let me ask, but then I did push her. I said, well, but let me ask you, I mean, you were pretty sure that I was, you know, very Asian and I needed to keep my Korean to my, you know, I did ask her if you, you know, pushed her a little bit, but, um, I will say it's a lot more complex than that. We probably talked for 45 minutes or more. I mean, we talked for a long time, but it was, um, I would say, productive and then at the same time confusing and um there's probably a lot of other things that have happened to her in her life you know that I don't necessarily know about um that has led her to make some decisions and you know and some opinions Mm. that I don't agree with but we did say that we would meet when it's COVID safe um Mm. we still have not met you know and, and honestly I've been so busy I have not like it's not a priority for me to reach out to her right now, you know? Um, but yeah, I said that on Ellen, like I, it is really complicated. You know, everyone brings their own experiences to the table and, um, we're not going to solve, you know, all the problems with race in a 45 minute conversation. Um, but I felt and still do feel responsible for her. Like, I want to make sure that she's, like not afraid, you know, to go out and live her life. You know what I mean? I, I don't think she deserves that. I think she made a mistake. She may have meant those words. I don't know, you know, um, or she may have been embarrassed that she got caught. You know, I don't, I don't know, but I, I feel like at the end of the day, she apologized. I accepted and we're kind of moving on without her, but I, but it is funny when you think like, I'm going to tell that lady off if I ever get a chance to see her, you know? And then when she calls us like, Oh gosh, you know, wow. Okay. This is, this is so weird. I probably would have um, felt that same way too. I would have had so much vitriol <laughs> and be like, you know, giving a little history lesson. But I also think that it also gave you an opportunity to reflect. And even though, the apology, whether it's genuine or not, it also opened up a dialogue. It's like, you know what, I got to understand where these roots are coming from with other people. Like, how can we try to understand where this is coming from so we know how to respond and what we need to be breaking um, or dismantling as far as, like, the racism that is used to harm people, right? Especially with the education and how people are brought up. And I think it's always important to... For you to uncover the roots and i know i felt like in some ways you were channeling your news anchor your your reporter <laughs> instincts like i need to know where this is coming from and what mm-hmm. might have led to it but I, I i don't need you i don't want you to have to go through that late the excavation well, part. you know to me it's like you want to dismantle it but sometimes the reasonings don't make sense 
Mm-hmm. There might be other factors involved. You know, it could be not just an experience. It could be like a mental health thing, or it could be a medication thing, or it could be, you know, there could be a lot of things where people don't make sense to you, you know? Um, and to me, it's like, I do want to dismantle racism. I do think it's very important to like change culture because that changes hearts. Um, and I think education is a big component to that. You know, when we look at our kids and see how how different they talk about like love, like what love looks like, you know, for kids. Um, and that's because of like the cultural changes that we've had, you know? And so I think our kids are so much more loving in many ways. Um, maybe people will disagree with that, but you know, um, there's kids are taught, you know, to be hateful and to be into, to be, um, to be discriminatory. Right. So I think, um, and I think society has said like, let's choose kindness, you know? So I think our kids are a lot more kind these days. And I think that that generation of children and hopefully my son's generation will be more open you know, to the world and make big world changes in a positive direction, right? But um, but in terms of dismantling racism, I think that we should actively be dismantling racism every day. At the same time, I think that one thing that we can all do, at least in the, like I look at the very Asian community, I think about me raising my son, is that we have to really fix ourselves to in the sense of like, we need to be able to forgive ourselves or heal ourselves or reclaim ourselves so that we aren't constantly making ourselves smaller for someone who has no desire to dismantle racism or who has no desire to, um, you know, be a good person, I guess, or, or just maybe doesn't have the capabilities, you know? I mean, I really do believe that some people, like I said, like might, might be dealing with a, an addiction issue or, you know, a mental health issue where they just don't make sense, right? So, um, so I definitely think that while the world is dismantling racism and while we're dismantling racism every day, if we can work on ourselves and be, and really have this self-love, then I think that we can kind of, make decisions that empower all of us a little bit better like make decisions in the workplace that are going to be more empowering for ourselves Mm -hmm. at the same time I don't want that to come across as like victim blaming or something you know like I'm saying like I have really tried to do so much work on myself so that I love myself because I feel like when I can love myself I operate a lot better you know so um, but at the same time, yes, the world needs to fix itself. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, like, you know, I don't. Um, yeah, just, we're all hard. figuring it out. Yeah, we're all figuring yeah. it out. We're all on our journeys to do that. And thank you for lifting this. And, you know, and uh, which also brings me to the next topic of you recently started the Very Asian Foundation, which is a great segue. And what can you share about the why in this mission to the audience? And what do you hope to achieve as an outcome through this work? And I know in some ways you kind of answered that, but definitely would like to get more of a hands-on with uh, the Asian, the Very Asian Foundation. Very Asian Foundation. Well, it was so exciting when we got the money, you know, granted, we, it really, we got the money in theory because it took a while for us to actually get the money, but um, just of the way things work. I, and so, I mean, when Ellen gave um, that awesome check to me, 
I was like, well, I can't take this money. Like we have to do something good with this money. And I was luckily surrounded by other great people who were like, let's do a foundation. And I was like, before I really knew the work that it takes to build a foundation. I, I went for like, a foundation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I was like, and then I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so much. Um, God, I love and- doing tax audits and everything. I love doing <laughs> yeah. the tax work and all that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, but I mean, the foundation, um, I was like, well, let's raise money for organizations already doing great work. And then let's come up with programming that um, that we feel kind of meets a need, you know? Um, so we're still, I mean, we have had, um, I think our mission statement right now is like amplifying diverse um, Asian American, Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander voices through um, a different, you know, through storytelling, community partnerships um, and journalism. But I mean, even, I think we need to pair that into a clearer message you know we're just trying to figure out like what is the exact message we know what the mission is but like you know what is our mission statement um and i think that that's going to take us just our, our board a little bit more time to figure out but really it's meeting the needs of those people who reached out and said i've never felt seen before as an adoptee or as a mixed race person or in the lgbtq community you know i can't speak on all of those experiences because i don't have all those experiences but we can build a board um, that can and we can also do work that still lifts up and amplifies our creators um you know we have so many like wonderful people in our community who've done so many great things but just need like amplification you know um and so that's what we would like to do. We would just like to help people um, feel good about who they are so that they can go out into the world and be confident and go conquer the world, seriously. Um, just even little things like me as a mom, um, I cannot for the life of me find a book for my son that represents our family. And I know that I have a very specific um, story like i'm an adopt you know as an adoptee um you know marrying a you know a white guy and then having a kid but it's like there's so many of us who don't feel represented and as we become you know as as our society evolves and um time goes on we're all becoming more mixed we're all having um different experiences and still I think a lot of our stories are told as a monolith, you know, and we really need mm-hmm. to get into the nuanced stories and conversations and um, and be able to find material or create material that represents us. And so that's what I think the Very Asian Foundation can do is help support creators who are doing that, but also just um, we're working like even with a student group now to try to get a book list out for May, which I'm really excited about. Um, and I can explain that a little bit more, but um, there were some students who came to us because they could not get their schools to buy um, AAPI books. And I just felt like that was crazy in this day and age. So we're working on a, a, a solution for those students that we think will carry over and, and be a national campus. Thank you so much for sharing that and and best of luck on that foundation. I'm looking forward to seeing what this foundation can provide and also what it can provide to a lot of uh, 
grantees who are doing the great work uh, in our communities. And and one of the questions I'd like to ask you is, what do you like about what do you like about being very Asian? <laughs> you know, I was asked this the other day on a student panel, and I said, you know what, I just like having my very Asian. Is that silly? Um, my <laughs> that's so stupid. Um, I just like looking very Asian. I just love. I really do like love looking like a very Asian person um, because I um, I joke that Asians don't raisin, and so I feel like I am aging um, at a rate that I really enjoy. I like being short. Um, I'm like five one. I like having melanin in my skin. I mean, there are just so many things that I actually really enjoy about looking Asian. Um, on top of the fact that I just, um, I don't know. I just have a lot of pride in being Korean looking, you know, I, um, I don't know. It's, it sounds so silly that I just really, I don't, when I say I like my looks, I mean, I don't like my looks looks. Like I've never had a, like, I've, I don't know how to explain this, but I've never had like a TV look, you know, I've never felt like I was like made for TV. Like some, you know, like some people are really like stunning and they, they're made for TV. I never felt like that or anything, but I just like looking like a Korean person, <laughs> like a Korean American. I don't know how to explain it. That's um, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> And I will say that the 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 not very Asian that I do like is I'm six foot tall, which is kind of hilarious. I'm actually the shortest of three. I'm actually the shortest between three brothers, and wow. of the three of us, I, sh I should say. And and I, I will say I like that part. But I think the thing that I love being very Asian is I just love my skin color. I just love. Uh, I just love having my black hair. I just love. Yeah just taking pride of my family roots and the history and the culture of what we've created and so yeah there's so much to love about us and i'm really glad that we can you know give ourselves time for that and i hope that everyone who is asian and also bipoc listening in can really you know take that time to lean in and think about the many where's your features or your internal what are the things that you love about yourself and and last question before i let you go is is there anything that you're working on? What can we look forward to the rest of this year? Oh my gosh. Okay, so I was talking about this book project, right? I'm really excited about this. It's not um, not finalized yet, but I think I can talk about it. Um, basically, some students came to us and they needed help. So what we did, we ended up working with a bunch of literary scholars, um, a, a bunch of um, a handful of national organizations in the literary and library spaces because that is not my wheelhouse, but we created this um, really comprehensive book list. And we are going to ask schools, and we're already working with schools and libraries um, to print the list so that they will have some sort of framework on like, you know, what titles to get for their collections, as well as creating um, a framework to have a more inclusive library. So like, um, a diversity audit, for example, like look at your collection. Is it, do you have illustrations of kids with slanted eyes or is all your collection like folk tales? Because if it is, you know, you need to balance it out with real world um, people because folk tales, you know, basically if you, you have like a million books on Korean folk tales and you're kind of making it like Korean people are mythical people, you know? So mm -hmm. it's like having this diversity audit that is um, a widely, 
um, accepted diversity audit uh, across the board, and then also having a collection um, development policy so that if someone asks you to buy a book, that you as a librarian will look at it, consider it, and consider buying it for your schools. So um, it's not curriculum. Um, I just have to be really careful about that because that's been so political. But like, it's really just being able to answer these students' um, wish to be able to see themselves in literature and have access to that literature. And so um, we just think that libraries are a place where we can you know, give a list to. And when we're giving a comprehensive list like the one that we have, um, you're giving also librarians and schools a choice. You know, if you've got 50 books, I mean, can you buy 10 of those books? So um, we want schools to make a pledge to buy more books for their schools, to look at their collection. And then we're also gonna do a campaign to ask the community to buy books for their library so that um, kids can see themselves. We know that in education, a lot of people talk about uh, being able to see yourself. They talk about mirrors and windows. So a mirror, obviously you see yourself, a window, you see somebody else. And that's really important in education and in literature. And uh, we think that our children deserve uh, the opportunity to see themselves. And we think it should be a community effort. So, and then we also wanna take it one step further. If libraries do, do not have a budget, which many libraries don't, then they can come to the Very Asian Foundation and we'll make sure that they get the books. On top of that, we'll, we wanna do virtual, um, we've already worked with some authors who have committed to doing um, like book discussions or virtual classroom visits or things like that. So we're working on it and hopefully we'll get it launched in, <laughs> in 21 days. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Just astounding. And where can people find Very Asian Foundation? Where, do they can, where can they find that? Well, actually we are rebranding a lot of things. So, oh. you know, when we launched in January, it was kind of like, um, I mean, it was still thought out, but it wasn't really, we didn't really know what we were doing. You know, we were just relying on people to help us and it was wonderful and people were great, but I think we're going to do some rebranding for May. And um, right now you can find us on very-asian.com, but we want a .org page. Um, I think the easiest way to find us is probably on social media and just in, on Instagram, it's the Very Asian Foundation. Um, we're on Twitter, we're on TikTok, but not, a, no, we're not super active on TikTok um, because it's literally just like me and Gia and a few other people. Wow. So, um, so we're building, you know, I think this year we'll really be looking at building a sustainable foundation, um, getting all of our ducks in a row. We are a public charity, but we have like so much paperwork to do and kind of, um, yeah, working on building funding, you know, and all that stuff. So yeah, best of luck because I think this is such a ambitious, but also can be <laughs> such a wonderful outcome. And I wish you all the best of luck and in this venture. And also, I want to say thank you so much for being on my show. And it's such an honor and really just to see what the last few months have been like for you, and just to see the positive energy that you exude. Uh, <laughs> and I think it really makes it easy for all of us to rally behind what you're doing and also inspire many of us to to look at ourselves to heal ourselves and to 
find ways to be proactive in our community, find ways where we can help and where we can be lifting others. And so you have demonstrated a lot of that in this conversation. So I will let you get going. But yeah, thank you so much, Michelle, for your time. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Randy. I really appreciate all of your interest and um, just the great conversation. Thank you. Well, that is a wrap for today. And I want to say thank you so much for listening to my guest and for this episode. So be sure to check out previous episodes that you might have missed. And to stay tuned, check out my Instagram at bunmi, which is B-A-N-H-M-I underscore chronicles. Or you can just type into my Facebook page at the bunmi chronicles or on Twitter at M-I underscore chronicles and also before before you leave uh make sure that you send a five-star review on apple podcasts and be sure to uh, check out for any new episodes thank you so much and again have a wonderful day